Welcome back to another episode of Everything Aviation Podcast. Fantastic guest for you today. A new book dropped about a month ago called Typhoon. I've been very lucky to make contact with Mike Sutton, the author of Typhoon. Uh, Typhoon is a fantastic book. I've been reading it so far. And Mike is here today to tell us about his adventures in the book and where it came from. Mike, how are we? Hi, Mikey. Thanks for, thanks for the plug and uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming on. Mike, this is this is brilliant. I always, as a massive aviation lover myself, I always love to see aviation books come out, and especially something based around stuff like this. We've got loads of Chunuk books. we got loads of uh, Tornado books as well, which is great to read. So when something that, like a modern fighter came out, I thought I have to get my hands on this. But before we talk about the book, I need to find out how you got to the point where you were commanding an RAF squadron that was using typhoons in war. So where did your interest in aviation come from? I think, um, like many kids, you just sort of see planes flying around and I've just had a, an interest in it from a young age but and sadly uh, I'm 43 and when I was young the the internet wasn't a thing and so it wasn't something you could google or find out anything about. Um, I lived under the flight path of the Hercules uh, coming in and out of RF Lynham and my school was near Salisbury Plain uh, and so you see these Chinooks flying around at low level almost every day these fly over the sports pitches and so it just kind of got interested really like the way many kids do know anyone i didn't know any pilots so it's really difficult to try and find a way into something that was i guess a bit less traditional than all um the sort of office job that my my parents sort of thought would you know would be a good fit uh so it it, it kind of started from that really i didn't really get anywhere and then when i was about 16 um back in the days when you could uh on airliners you uh, my brother and i were invited up to the cockpit uh, and we stood there and I remember still really clearly to this day just looking down it I mean it was it was a night evening flight and we're over Paris and I could just see these lights just glimmering below and this amazing visibility and ahead I could see in the distance um, the channel and the coastline and I just thought I've, I've just got to I've got to try this dream I've got to try and make this work um, and then my parents found a sort of friend of a friend uh, who was in the RAF and I remember just going to the pub with him and having a beer and he just talked to me about the whole process and how you can apply to try and in. So it was when I was at sixth form, really, I then started to, uh, to try and, you know, try and take it more seriously in terms of actually trying to get in, into it as a career. Brilliant. And going back to what you were talking about, um, jobs, uh, office jobs and stuff, you, you had your heart set on being a solicitor at this stage. Yeah, I think I sort of seemed like a good idea uh, and something kind of traditional and practical to do. Um, so, yeah, that was the kind of direction I was pointing in. But I think my my heart was probably somewhere completely different. I just didn't know how to actually execute that and to actually kind of get involved in that line of work. Makes sense. And it sounds like you definitely went on to something more exciting as well. So then you went on to university. Um, and this this was a bit what I thought was it was strange. You wanted to be a solicitor uh, and you went in to do philosophy. How did that come across? Yeah, I decided... Uh, that I didn't want to pursue uh, becoming a solicitor at that point. And I decided I wanted to try and get into the Air Force. And so after school, I tried to get it, uh, tried to get in and I applied. And I went up to Cranwell, which is the home of the, uh, the RAF, if you like. Um, the RAF's the oldest Air Force in the world. So it's got a lot of history. And the Cranwell's the sort of centre of recruitment and where the leadership training's done. So as a really nervous 17-year-old, I went up there like thousands of others um, with three days worth of uh, you know overnight kit, and then did the selection, which was a, a load of aptitude tests, uh, the shipments, all that sort of stuff. But didn't actually get in. And I got home and thought, well, I've 
I've done okay. And then a letter arrived a few days later that said, you haven't got in and wish you every success. And at that point I thought, well, this is kind of over. It's over before it's begun. But I went off to university, decided to study philosophy because um, I mean, I'm hopeless at maths and I've never been able to pass an engineering degree. I'm all right at English. So I thought I'll do that. And I thought the course would be full of, you know, loads of attractive girls as well, which was uh, also a complete, a completely poor judgment. But no, philosophy seemed like a good, you know, a good thing to go and do and giving me time to join university as well. And that would provide an opportunity to learn how to fly and pretend of this crack of trying to get into the RAF. And it was fantastic. I met some, you know, some awesome people on the UAS. I remember just arriving there in the first week and, and joining a really social setup, meeting these RF instructors, uh, getting told that we're going to learn how to fly and um, some, some of the RF flying skills as well, not just the, you know, the takeoff and the landing and the nash, but tics and formation aerobics and low level flying and, and stalling and spinning and all of this stuff, which all seemed quite exciting. So I was well up for it. And, um, and Southampton University was a great place to be. Uh, got stuck into the flying and then when I applied to the Air Force a couple of years later with a bit more experience under my belt then I, I was lucky to get in the second time round. When you got that second letter to say that you're in how, how did that feel? Yeah I was absolutely delighted I think by that point it had been several years now of hoping and trying and so I was also really aware that it was just the start of a of a long road it didn't it wasn't a letter saying you're going to be in a cockpit it was a letter that said you can start officer training uh, and then you've got then got to pass years worth of training after that so i knew that i didn't you know i had the opportunity to become an rf pilot and and that's all it was really it was opening the door and then really it's a fantastic i've got the opportunity to go and prove myself now so huge excitement but uh, a, a massive feeling of being daunted and and slightly intimidated as well at the same time and when you start flight training the stuff that you've already done in the Bulldog with the University Air Squadrons, does that count? Like, do you get to skip any kind of initial training at all because you've done all that? The Air Force keeps chopping and changing about how they use the University Air Squadrons. So I think in the past it did, and then it didn't. And then when I was going through, it did count as formal training. And so uh, the, the route to being a fast jet pilot, you do uh, elementary flying training, which is about 100 hours. At university, that's spread over your course. If you're doing it full time, I think it takes about six, nine months, something like that. If you pass that, you then go on to your basic fast jet training, which when I was going through is on the Tucano, which is a, uh, a turboprop aircraft with ejection seats sort of sitting in tandem. Looks a, bizarrely, looks a bit like a Spitfire. It's, um, they've replaced it with the Texan now. Uh, so that course takes about a year. And then if you pass that, you go on to the, uh, the Hawk training, which takes about a year. And you then go on to your conversion unit and you, and you train on your frontline type, which takes about six or nine months. So the whole process takes about four years. And the RF seems to play around with that first course at university as to whether it counts or whether it's free sort of exposure. Wow. I think soon after I left, it, they just became a bit of a, um, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't count. But I, I understand now they're looking at making it formalized again. So, Mike, when you came off in the, the Bulldogs, you've, you've, you've done all your, your stuff. You're now going on to something that's a lot quicker. Like you said, a turboprop that looks like a Spitfire. What, what's that like the first time that you're strapping yourself into this aircraft? It was fantastic to finish officer training, which was six months of square bashing, learning how to march around, room inspections, um, writing essays, leadership training, all that sort of stuff. So it's great to have that done um and and in the bag and then 
going up to Linton on Ouse, which is just closing now, which is a real shame because it was a fantastic base near York uh, with a bunch of other 21 year olds. It was amazing because you're just starting to get paid for the first time. You're getting let loose on these aeroplanes that can do almost 300 knots. You're getting to fly them around at low level. For the first time as well, you're taking off from somewhere and flying to the other end of the country as well. So you take off from Linton, you go up to Scotland and then get yourself back at low level through all the hills. So it all felt quite grown up. Um, but it was really, uh, really exciting as well. There were about about a hundred of us, us as students, I guess, at the base. So the Friday nights were wild, the parties were awesome, and then you'd all pile into York. So you had this, this amazing blend of the flying training, which was really hard work. You had to study uh, enormously hard in the evenings, a lot of pressure on all the flights, but then a great social time at the weekends. Uh, at the back of everyone's mind was the fact that if you passed this course, you could get to go and fly the Hawk, uh, which is a you know, proper, serious, fast jet. So that was always in the back of your mind. And you also knew that you wanted to pass the course well. Uh, and so there's a lot of pressure on every, every sortie. And everyone that's done flying training knows that at the end of each trip, you know, you get assessed by the instructor. And at uh, Linton, when we we're flying the Takano, um, the write-ups were quite extensive. So you'd, you'd go flying every day, you'd have a different objective every single day. It was never just go and build some hours it was today we're going to do stalling three or today we're going to do low level four you know whatever the, the trip had to be uh, they're assessed against really key objectives uh, and then your you know your procedures in the air your safety it was all scored from naught to six six being the best and naught being a sort of dismal failure um, with these ticks and then the whole the whole sortie was written up and graded so when you landed, there was this sort of nervous wait while you go and get a cup of coffee. Maybe your instructor would go flying again. And then you go and get your tick sheet and you see how you got on. Uh, and if you got a three or a four, that was great. You know, you were motoring. You get the odd five, that was brilliant. And if you got a two, you'd failed. Um, and if you failed, you had to repeat the trip. If you, and if you failed a couple of trips, you, you were put on to review. And it was really three strikes and you're out. And you'd see people, they were doing fine and maybe six months into the course, they couldn't get to grips with a certain aspect of the flying training. They were struggling with one, one, one area or another. They'd go on to review, the pressure would come on, the spotlight would come on and they wouldn't get through and they'd get chopped and they'd literally pack their bags and go and redeploy. And so you were, you were enjoying this, you know, you could be flying high the next week, the whole dream could be over. And you, and you had that pressure for about three years during the training. It's mad because you talk about, um, even under UAS, that the guillotine was always in the shadows. And that seems very much so the whole way, the whole way through, really, um, until you, you had your wings on, on, on your chest, your arm. Yeah, and I think it's always there for, for pilots. Even when you're fully qualified, you're still conscious of not making any big safety mistakes uh, during a simulator assessments, for example you know, that might get a failed assessment sortie. Because as you know, um, pilots have got to be formally assessed in their skills twice a year in most cases. And that's unlike most professions where as a, you know, as a doctor or as a solicitor, you qualify, then you just go and practice and you don't get externally checked and tested against the basics all the time. And that's something that pilots have. And you also have external factors like um, you know, the loss of medical or the loss of license and things as well. So there's always these risks to your entire way of life that are always there. 
Uh, and I think in flying training, darts on trip where where they're actively trying to, you know, to to instruct you and to get you through, but also to weed out the people who aren't going to be there. So the mindset isn't right. Everyone's going to pass this course. The mindset is you've got to prove that you're good enough to pass this course. And we're going to assess you every single day because uh, the risks involved at the end with flying single seat fighters are, are such that the training system is, has got to only let people through who can prove that they're safe to do that. So yeah, there's huge pressure really th throughout your career, but particularly at the start when you're trying to establish yourself. And do you ever... Uh, and that's thing that you just, you just learn a little bit and you just get used to. And do you, you say you get used to it. Is, is that just, is this pressure ever go away or is it always there? Even when you reach, say, a, a frontline squadron and stuff like that, it do, does it, is it like a release valve at all or do you just get used to it and live with it? I think it, it it's trying trying to find an analogy, but there there is a sort of release valve at certain stages. So when you pass a course, you think, oh, okay, I've done that, and then on to the next. And you go on to the next course, you know, the PSI just kind of increases again, and you pass that, and you know, you get a bit of a release. Um, when you get onto the frontline squadron, you, you've obviously made it. You've got your wings, your your professional pilot. Now you're being employed, and and you can relax into that a little bit. But the training doesn't stop, and uh, you, when you finish the operational conversion unit, or you know, which is equivalent of a type rating in the commercial aviation, but it goes on a lot longer. It goes on for about six to nine months. Wow! You graduate uh, as a as a what's called a junior pilot, and you don't have any qualifications or uh, experience, so you just build at that point, and then over the next uh, few years, you have more tactical workups to go through where they teach you uh, how to do air combat and maybe be responsible to go out and do air combat as a pair or as a three or as a four. Um, and then you do a thing called a pairs lead workup where you get your qualification, where you can then yourself take a more junior wingman with you on your wing and go off as a, as a fighting pair, but you're responsible for that formation. Uh, and then that, that kind of multiplies up to the fours lead because most fast jets operate in, uh, in gangs of twos or fours. So you need someone with enough experience to not only run their own aeroplane, but run the four ship uh, and likewise an eight ship. Um, and then if you're doing well and, you, and, and you're passing those courses, then you can get to go on and become a tactics instructor, which is where you then do a qualified weapons instructor course, which is uh, another six months, which is pretty brutal. And the entry level of that is uh, that you're already a tactical four ship leader. And then they just put the spotlight on and turn the screw and, and expose you to all the aspects of operating that aeroplane in minute detail um, to try and graduate you as a weapons instructor, which means you can then be responsible for all the tactics on the frontline squadron. And that's, that's what most people see as uh, most challenging and interesting kind of career path to go down that tactics instructor route. And so really it's only when you've got your, your QI badge, do you then feel that you've kind of got all your instructional qualifications and you know your tactical qualifications squared away. Um, but then new challenges come along, new operations, new deployments, um, where they'll use their experts to plan these things and, 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 and develop new countermeasures and develop new ways of doing things. So there's always a pressure because you get, you get assessed not only internally as a squadron but by your squadron's deployment and how successful you were on an exercise so if you go away uh to red flag which is the biggest exercise in the world it's hosted in nellis 
Air Force Base, the home of the fighter pilot. The sun always shines there. It's a great place. And you're surrounded by 100 other fast jets. And your squadron's taken eight jets away to participate. And you're representing the UK. If your squadron's not tactically up to scratch, it's really obvious to all the American squadrons, whoever else is participating. So, and, and often you might get assessed by um, the Air Warfare Centre will come along and, and see how you do. So there is huge pressure in that career. And it doesn't stop when you get solo on your first typhoon flight. Really, you, it kind of continues throughout. And um, I think the only time I really felt the pressure completely drained was when I left the RAF. Oh, really? And thought, <laughs> right, okay, I've survived. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't I, you know, I can go and do something different now. Wow, that's that's amazing. You'd speak like I've I've never heard of it of, of that kind of side of it before. Everyone thinks, oh, you know, flying fast jets, yeah, really cool. But like you said, there, there's always a, an element of of something coming at you. And you talk about it in your book where you're in Canada with the hawk. Um, you've you've just qualified on on the hawk, and then there's another course where an instructor walks into the room and tells you, well, if you think it's going to get easy, it's not. Now you're going to learn how to use it as a weapons platform. Um, and it, it, it does seem um, that it, it's always constantly getting thrown at you. There's no time to ever just sit back and take a breath. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, you just jump one hurdle and the, the next one comes along. But that's what makes it a fun and interesting career. And that's why, you know, if I could rewind to 21, I'd do it all over again because it's so exhilarating. It's fantastic. Um, and, you know, it, you get with the highs, you get the lows as well. And for lots of people, uh, they don't make it through. You know, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, most of the time, if people have got kind of at least partially through fast jet training and, and it doesn't work out, they'll go on to, uh, to helicopters or multi-engines and I have fantastic careers in those fields as well. So it's never all over, but certainly the fast jet route does present, you know, lots of hurdles all the way. And I guess that what, that's what makes it fun. That's brilliant. And you would talk about hurdles. There was one where you were saying you a few times you were pulling G and you felt sick. Now, I myself, I don't do well with G. Um, and that's one of the things I find is I just feel sick as a dog afterwards or even during it. What made you carry on then if, if that was how you were feeling? Uh, what made you just just keep going with it? Um, did, did, it did you ever get used to it or did it just go away? Yeah, I, I did get used to it. But my first taste of it in the Bulldog was great. I've never actually been sick, but I felt really rubbish several times. And right at the start, we did this loop and I thought, right, this is it. You know, I've read, I've read some lovely flying books. I'm about to go and do a loop myself. And this bulldog was groaning. It smelled of fuel. It was hot, uh, pulled about three or four G uh, and came out the bottom of this. And I just felt awful. And the instructor looked at me and said, oh, did you enjoy it? And I went, oh yeah, that was great. And I just lied through my teeth. <laughs> Hoped it would get better, and it is. And funnily enough, um, as I moved up the aircraft types, you know, in the Sakano, I'd still feel a bit sick from time to time, but you could kind of get through it with currency. Um, and then by the time I'd reached the Typhoon, I was just much more used to the whole thing, and I could go out and pull lots of G, uh, and I'd feel fine. I did occasionally feel a bit rough when I was teaching air combat, where we had some two stickers, and you'd sit in the back, uh, and um, the student in the front be teaching them some offensive or defensive moves and, th and they'd be really maneuvering the aircraft around going left going right reversing it putting lots of g unloading it left right and this would go on for an hour and there were many times i sat in the back and just turned my microphone off and just put myself onto 100 percent, or just oh god you know not too far to go and you did feel rough and i talked to the other instructors and they had similar experiences so you don't get like a superhuman resistance to it at all but you do build up a kind of tolerance um, and it was noticeable actually because 
sometimes you take a passenger flying um someone who's not not a uh, a pilot even just you know someone visiting the base some vip and you give them a, a trip and you'd always tone it right down and you'd fly it like an airliner but at the end you just maybe whack it around a little bit just put a few g and just a couple of barrel rolls and these people would kind of peel themselves out of the airplane <laughs> at the end and uh you think okay well i must be used to it because i'm not looking as bad as that guy <laughs> um that's just bad especially when you're like oh you just did you ever have like bets and stuff to see if you can make the guy in the back sick no no never do anything like that and i, and I always um i just wanted them to have a brilliant time because you you think this is probably going to be the one shot they're going to have in in a fast jet so it's all about that person and you'd ask them look do you want to do an afterburner takeoff do you want to do a barrel roll do you want to just or what do you want to do because when he's in a passenger ride it was all about that person having a great time so you'd never try and you know make them sick or anything like that brilliant and talking about great times after you'd finished in canada with the hawk how did you find out you were getting posted to jaguars at the end of the course there was a tradition at the time and i don't know if it still goes on but it was called the roll disposal which was turned into a bit of a party as well. And so you'd be there as the instructors and the students and the students sort of in the courses behind who hadn't kind of finished yet would join in as well. And there would be a, you know, a party where maybe you had to, kind of, you know, they have a couple of beers, you'd maybe have to guess where you were going. Um, and then after a bit of banter, they'd eventually tell you, you'd find out, you know, one at a time. And so, you know, the guy in front of you would be told he's off to the tornado and you're thinking, oh great, he's passed the course. Maybe I didn't want to go that way. Maybe everyone's going tornado this year. So there's a lot of nerves around where people wanted to go and whether they'd um, they got to the jet that they actually wanted to go to. Uh, they tended to stream you a little bit on, on um, how you got on on that advanced flying course as well. So if you were better at the air-to-air -air side, they might try and get you to go to the F3. If you were a bit better at the air-to-ground, they'd be thinking about some of the other jets. Um, some of them are two-seat, some of them are single-seat. And so even right up to the end of the advanced, advanced fast jet tr training, you were trying to get the best possible scores to give yourself the best possible chance of going where you wanted to go or going to one of the better airplanes. Wow, that's amazing. And talking about the Jag, it, it seems like an amazing aircraft and its capabilities are, are amazing, especially when you were talking about um, doing tanking at night in bad weather and a, a pair had already said, no, we're, we're going home. What, what was that like to actually experience that and sit in the cockpit for that? And you were with your boss as well. So you're trying to impress him. I was, I was, I was just trying not to lose the guy in formation that, on that, uh, <clears throat> that sortie. The weather was awful. It's just one of those horrible, dark, winter, stormy nights. Uh, you just don't want to go flying in the first place, let alone go and do a load of formation and night tanking. And we'd taken off as a pair on the runway. So we'd done a close formation takeoff, rotating the jets. I think it was about a knot, so about 200 miles an hour in close formation. And then sitting on his wing, and you're only about... 10 feet apart going through the cloud wow. and as the cloud got thicker sometimes you'd actually lose the airplane just a moment in the thickness of the cloud and then you just see this ghostly outline reappear and you're just holding on there uh, on these formation references so for grim death really not wanting to uh, to break out of the formation unless you absolutely had to and if it get if it did get so thick the cloud that you couldn't see you'd have to break out and we had procedures for that but it was one of those nights where if I just used 
all of my brain, all of my concentration relentlessly could just about stay in formation and just grit your teeth. And so I did that. And I just, I remember um, the, the, the radio, the other formation saying they're cooking there going home. And I thought, well, at least there's going to be some relief to the end of this trip. We can just knock it on the head. But my boss, Mike Sears, you know, was this Gulf War One legend and uh and turn away and he was like no no we're just going to have a look and so i just thought well you know who am i i'm just going to sit there on the wing um and it was just a horrible dark night and i remember just looking through his airplane from left to right across and then suddenly out of nowhere in front of his airplane this tri-star just appeared out of the gloom and he'd found it in the cloud at night um and it was you know number two you cleared a stone to try and fill up and back I went. So yeah, it was fairly, <clears throat> it was fairly extreme. <laughs> That's mad. I was going to say, like most people don't even like driving their car through fog and stuff like that. And then you're, you're being asked to sit on someone's wing, form eight with them and find a tanker uh, in the middle of the night over the North Sea. Yeah. And that was um, quite a sort of routine thing to do. So you would do that fairly regularly. Uh, and like all things that seem tricky at first, <clears throat> the more, you know, the, the easier it gets. But night tanking in bad weather was was never fun. And um, anyone who, who said they enjoyed it is just you know, <laughs> weird. And I remember, you know, even years later on the Typhoon, back to our base, and it was about an hour and a half transit. We had no fuel to get back. So we had to tank in order to get enough fuel to make it home. And it was, it was another wind, it's always wintry, moonless thunderstorms night that caused them the problems. But this is a horrific one. I remember sitting with my wingman and we found this Voyager that was going the same direction. So we just said, yeah, you cleared a stern, you cleared, cleared to fill up. But the hoses were just rippling up and down, uh, maybe going 10 feet high and low, just bouncing because the, the Voyager was just flying, uh, was getting hit with this turbulence. And um, at the end of the wing, the hose comes out and at the end of it's got this basket and it's a bit like a whip and that the the movements get bigger you know as the wing flexes up and down um and we sat behind this thing um we both really short on fuel we, we we had to refuel um and i managed to get in somehow more by luck than judgment and refueled unplugged and then my wingman couldn't get in for 40 minutes and his airplane was just desperately lunging trying to get in and he's coming on the radio i, I can't get in just trying to reassure him it's going to be okay and 40 minutes later he finally plugged and we were on absolute minimum fuel and we we're just going to have to just dive it down and stick it on the nearest stick of concrete if he hadn't actually managed to plug so even for an experienced he was a pairs lead combat ready typhoon pilot it's still really hard to plug sometimes and so that feeling never goes away Wow, 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 wow. And I'd, I'd say that from, pulling from your first experience, when you're in that kind of situation, it's, it's a bit mad and to think that you can do it, but it, it's, you, you've, you've been in this situation before, but different aircraft, different uh, scenario. Um, and then at the same time thinking, like you said, we're going to have to stick down on, on, on concrete. That, that must be quite scary. Yeah, it was. You're so focused though. I think when you get into that, level of extremity uh, as when you and i guess we'll talk about it later and i go i go into it a lot on the book when i'm talking about you're about to drop a weapon or you just dropped a weapon um what you're thinking and and what you're processing and what your concerns and what your fears are but the overriding emotion in in any of these situations 
is just that you, you kind of snap into this professional mode. You know, you've had so much training. You almost, um, you, you, you don't have huge emotion. It, you, you just, you're concentrating on the task. You've got to get the task done, you know, with this tanking incident. And um, he just needed to plug. And if he couldn't plug, I was coming up with a contingency plan to get us into a, an S-drip in Jordan. I think it was on the way back. Wow. And you just get into the time to sort of, um, get overly emotional about anything it's all about trying to keep a um a clear head perfect yeah my dad always says my dad was a skydiving instructor a pilot everything and he always said if you panic you're dead he said that, that that's it he said fear is your friend um panic will kill you and i think it, you you guys must have been really taught that throughout your your whole time as well and and, and told stuff like that yeah i think that's that's hugely good advice that you know you were given and that's it is that there's nothing wrong with being in a stressful situation you, you just have a game about it and and do something that's uh, the correct course of action and this is one of the things in, in flying training that it, it exposed you to quite uh, challenging and extreme scenarios and just look for sensible response and if people um didn't display though uh, that approach to flying because i think flying fast jets is as much about a mentality and, and an approach as it is about you know the, the skills required to kind of fly them if that makes sense and for people who get stuck when it came to that um uh how do you react to a situation then then that was often more of a problem in progressing than actually just you know forgetting how the nav system worked or something like that because you can you can reteach that quite quickly but when it's a kind of character-based thing that that tended to be more of a an indicator of an issue that maybe the the individual wasn't suited to the role rather than just a lack of knowledge which can be addressed you know, relatively easily wow i'm talking about extreme situations you had another kind of funny moment funny scary moment where one of your your colleagues did um in romania uh, while uh, dropping practice weapons um can you tell me some, a bit about that yeah we used to drop little practice weapons which were uh about the size of a pringles tin sort of about uh you know, small sort of foot long thing about weighed about three kilograms. And they were great for practice because they, they flew through the air like uh, a thousand pound bomb. So you could go and train with these things, use the weapon aiming correctly, but they would just have a really small, um, like a firework, just a little flash when they hit the ground. So you could see where they'd landed. And we'd always drop them in, in dedicated ranges um, that were, you know, clear of people and all the rest of it. So it's all very safely done. But it meant that because these rounds are so small, you could uh, you could get other aircraft in behind you quite quickly, and there wasn't a great risk to them. When you're carrying much bigger weapons, uh, other aircraft are going to stay well clear because if these things go off in midair or they create a huge explosion on the ground, the last thing you want to be doing is getting close to them. Um, so we train as a formation and drop the practice weapons, and the other aircraft would go through quite quickly behind, and you could get three or four through a target quite quickly and quite safely very safely and out in Romania uh, flying with MiG-21s we'd agreed that we'd do a uh, um, a practice bombing mission and just using practice weapons and that as they it was their country they could go through first they told us they were using practice weapons and so we could go through quite quickly behind and um, the first guy to go and do this mission Stuka um, I remember I was on the uh, I was the duty pilot that day, so I wasn't flying. I was just on on the what we call the orth desk, where you're kind of monitoring all the flight ops. And he stormed back in and like threw his flying jacket down, and and I was like, well, what's happened? And he said, well, they dropped napalm, and 
the Romanians hadn't dropped practice weapons at all. They dropped, so he was flying through at 250 feet, 480 knots, which a few seconds behind this MiG-21. And the sky just erupted in a cloud of smoke and flame, like out of Apocalypse Now, like some Vietnam War film that he then just had to kind of break his aeroplane away from and not fly through. Um, and it was all in the communication. And I've called these guys up and said, well, we thought we were dropping practice weapons. And they said, yeah, just practice napalm, just small canisters, only half size. So, you know, an enormous, what we would consider huge live weapon of death was dropped. But for the Romanians, it was just a practice weapon. That really tickled me. Yeah, practice napalm. What? <laughs> um, and then, so you, you, you've done all this on, on the Jaguar. Uh, how did you find out that you were then going on to the Typhoon? Well, the Jaguar was closing as part of the defence review. And uh, at the time, and every few years, you know, the military realigns, looks at what it's going to keep going, looks at what it's going to close. And unfortunately, and we knew the Jag was old, it was taken a little bit early. So suddenly we found, we, you know, it's like, I guess what the guys have gone through, guys and girls with coronavirus recently, where you find out fleets being cut. And everyone then goes into, mo into well, I've got to find another job. Can I stay with this airline? Can I move fleet? Can I, you know, how am I going to survive? And it was similar in the Air Force and that we got told the Jag was going. Um, so you're trying to find an escape route on, onto another jet. And there are some that are uh, really appealing. The Typhoon was just coming online. Uh, and there were maybe some that were a little bit less appealing, going back to flying training. Uh, there's a school out in North Wales and it suits some people and not others. And so people are very aware that they might, might get a good deal or maybe less a good deal when the Jag closed. Uh, I actually applied to the Red Arrows because uh, I thought that might be quite good fun for a few years and got through to their shortlist and, and flew with them. Uh, um, did about the sorting, which was fun, but that wasn't to be. But I remember coming back from that and um, going to see the station commander and he said, well, you haven't got into the Reds. They picked a couple of Harrier pilots. So, um, but you're off the Typhoon. We want to send you there. And so right. um, that was awesome. And I got posted to the Typhoon when it was just starting. So it had been flown in the UK for, for a few years at the kind of doing test work with the test pilots and like the early trials. Uh, but I was put onto the first multi-role um, frontline squadron called 11 Squadron and that stood up um, with just a handful of pilots. And it was amazing to be given the opportunity to be in this thing just as it started and as it grew. I remember flying one of the five and you're getting to these like completely brand new state of the art fighters right off the production line uh, and and you know it's incredible and the, the difference between the, the two jets was insane i mean the jaguar was a notoriously underpowered old airplane great at what it did flying along at low level through the hills dropping air to ground weapons um didn't really have any sort of air to air capability um and was a uh, you know it, it had been it had been in service for about 30 or 40 years and it was sort of time it was time that it exited, came from the blind brand new. This thing was hugely overpowered. It had 40,000 pounds of thrust in it. You can take this thing off uh, and just fly it vertically, accelerate vertically. Um, it uh, can pull 9G. It's got completely carefree handling. So you couldn't, you can't stall it or spin it. The Jaguar, by comparison, had no autopilot whatsoever, no auto throttle, not even a, an attitude hold. Uh, so you're always flying this thing. It was impossible to trim it out. Um, so if you, if you let go of the stick or the throttle, even for 10 seconds, it would start to turn and descend. Uh, so it was very difficult to fly. The Typhoon was the opposite. It was really easy to fly. 
you put the the burners in and the thing would just thrust you back into the seat you wow. just accelerate um even when you're pulling g i remember once uh fight fly and get some tornadoes just in a training mission and i went to the merge which is where you fly head to head with these things and four tornadoes flashed past and i turned to try and get behind them but i was doing about 500 knots as i put the burners in and pulled the 9g and the jet went straight to 9g it held it there and it continued to accelerate and i only know this because i was used to the speed kind of washing off on an airplane when you when you pull uh, back on the stick and it was just really hard. I remember my body feeling quite a lot of pain. I can remember my eyeballs like pushing down into my skull and then struggling to kind of look up into the head up display. And as I did, it was going through 540 knots and 550 knots and I'm just accelerating at 9G. So the power of the airplane is absolutely insane. And that took a little bit of getting used to. I can imagine. And it, it's talked about pulling G and stuff. Um, you talked about a G jacket in the book as well now usually i think with g suits it's just a pair of trousers that wraps around your abdomen and, and, and squeezes your legs is the typhoon really that beast of an animal where it needs to have an inflatable jacket and the trousers yeah and i i don't think i mentioned the in the book but it's got socks as well so you can put <laughs> g socks on <laughs> and uh but we didn't tend to wear them because i don't think they did much good but we were issued g which was the trousers and the g jacket and so that whole system from your neck down really uh, would just clamp around your body and so whenever you pull g the whole thing would constrict uh and and squeeze your body to increase the blood pressure get enough blood pressure to your brain. the problem with pulling g there's there's two aspects to it there's the physiological aspect where you might just injure yourself um if you pull not times the weight that it normally does human head is five kilograms if you put a helmet on it a mask you know some goggles then it's now weighing seven if you then pull g you, you know you extrapolate that so if you if you've got all that stuff on you pull 9g your five kilogram head now now weighs 63 kilograms so imagine the pressure that puts on your neck but people would occasionally strain the neck so you might have that sort of issue with g but the most um dangerous one and could happen insidiously and quickly was the risk of g-lock where when you pull back on the stick really quickly the g-force just forces the blood down uh, around your knees and your ankles and uh, the blood pressure to your brain decreases very quickly and it could stop the flow of oxygen and when that happens it's uh, people can gray out and they can g-lock and sadly that's what happened to uh, a friend of mine john egging at the bournemouth air show you know, several years ago and g-locked when he's coming back into land and, and crashed and um it's it's a huge risk that all the fast jets face and there have been a number of fatalities of it over the years uh the g suit is a way of trying to counter that and so you get taught in the centrifuge which is an afternoon of pure joy where you go to a, a facility in farnborough and they spin you around in this thing up to 9g and they teach you in a safe environment the effects and what it feels like um, and then when you're flying these jets for real, yeah, you're, you're covered in head to toe in, in, in this G suit and it compresses. The other thing that, that happens as well is your mask, you get, uh, it forces oxygen, it forces the air into you under pr pressure so that it increases the partial pressure of, um, of the transfer in your lungs of oxygen because it's there under pressure. So that's again, a means of trying to get the oxygen levels high. So, um, the whole thing inflates, you get pressure in your mask and it's all fairly kind of uncomfortable and when you're on the ground you do these checks where you make sure it's all working 
And it feels worse, bizarrely, when you're doing it on the ground, when you're in the air and you're pulling G, you're so focused on turning the aeroplane, you've got these effects, the G-force, you don't really feel the G-suit kicking in. It just happens. Uh, and it's an incredibly clever design that seems to really well. You've still got to strain, you've still got to tense, you've still got to do all these counter-G manoeuvres that they teach you. Um, but the Typhoon G kit is uh, a really good, a really good bit of equipment. It's amazing. Um, and the first, that's the first time I've seen it and I ever thought of it was. And I've, I've never actually spoke. You're the first Typhoon pilot I've actually spoken to on, on the podcast. Um, and it was a documentary, I think it was back in 2014, um, about the RAF where they followed the display teams. And it was the Typhoon guys who were walking out, putting the jackets on. I said, oh, geez, I've never seen that before. That's quite cool. Obviously, from the description you've just given, you need it in, in this beast of, a, of an animal. I've seen it at air shows and stuff. Um, there was one that really sticks with me. It was in Port Rush. Um, in Northern Ireland and a couple of my mates were waiting for it to come and the guy got on the intercom he said ah it's a bit delayed so we were like okay and we sat on this beach and um, the Vulcan was still flying time so that had come and gone and we thought oh there's just this uh, just this lull and I seen it before I heard it it was, was the typhoon he came down the beach and I just had enough time to say to my mates oh look a typhoon and that was it he'd gone past there was this roar and about a mile yeah. down the beach he was already in this 9G left hand turn and just as he was starting that I managed to just get out foon to my mates and they all went oh yeah look at that and it was just an animal of a thing and then um, the guy, he, he did his display and he stood up, it stood up on his tail. Like you said, you can pull it vertically and keep accelerating. And he disappeared up through this cloud and we could hear him and hear and hear him until eventually the guy on the uh, the tannoy said, oh yeah, he's he's back over Scotland. And I found this really mad because we could still hear him. He was, it was just such an animal of a thing and blew, blew my mind. It's one of my favourite things to see at an air show. Yeah, when you've, when you've got the jet going fast at low level, you get up to 500 knots, you can literally just, you can go from low level up to 40,000 feet in about a minute oh jeez up you go it's insane <laughs> um you've got to tell their traffic you're going to do it for their plane they're not expecting the climb rate to be quite like that so you've got to make sure there's no one up you know even six miles above you because you're going to reach them pretty quickly so yeah it's great i mean the the, the g suit as well um is more than just the g protection so you would it's also got loads of pockets on it for survival equipment because if you have to eject uh you might be somewhere quite remote. You might not get picked up for a while. So depending on where you are, you can put different bits of equipment into this thing. And that's, that's a department in the Air Force will work out what, what you need at any given time. But there's things like sashes of water in there. There's in the ejection seat itself, it's got a dinghy. So if you eject into uh, over the sea, you can then put yourself into a, a dinghy. There's a radio, uh, there's a beacon for recovery, things like that. And then when you go on operations, you, you're carrying a weapon as well. And uh, the first time I did it, I remember you'd be putting this cock into a snugly across your chest, a kind of canvas holster. And then you put your G suit around it and zip it up. And I remember just taking off and putting just a small amount of G as I was turning airborne, just to cut a couple of G. And the thing just inflated and it just squeezed this Glock into my chest. I could feel the metal digging into my ribs. And you're just really aware that um, you're in a, you know, you're in a single seat jet. There's no one else there. You're going off to Iraq. And there's a there's a, a pistol digging into your chest and you're fully armed. So uh, it's it's strange it's strange when you've got to interact with all that equipment. And to stay staying when you're talking about like interacting with equipment and stuff, you talk you you actually opened the book with an amazing story about you guys. Um, I think it was being the first to use cannon fire on on, on the typhoon uh, during, during a mission. What was that like? Yeah, it's the only time I think in all the nations it's ever been used. Um, 
it was it's something we trained for for years and the platform was capable of it but we were so uh, fully equipped with other weapons we carry eight bombs between us that we thought it's going to be fairly unlikely that we'll need this because we've got so much other equipment but the fighting that we're involved with was so extreme <clears throat> uh, some days that we drop all eight weapons in different attacks and you go from one to the next go to the tanker fly 100 miles check in with a, a soldier who needs assistance and every time we, we were dropping these weapons it was to support uh, the friendly soldiers on the ground uh, who'd only call in their support when they're in trouble um, so you you arrive overhead a task and you knew that you were there because if you didn't if you didn't get the effect the guys needed on the ground and you get it didn't get it done quickly then probably friendly troops would die and so that puts pressure on, on the immediate situation and uh, despite the firefight that's happening on the ground, you've got to go through a really clear rules of engagement. You've got to make sure that what you're doing is tactically correct, is authorized. And that's all quite a quick process, but you're going through these really clear um, checks and balances to make sure that what you're about to do is legal, it's needed, it's appropriate. And the most important thing of all of that is that you're not going to cause any civilian casualties or collateral damage. Uh, and for the five months we were out there, we did hundreds of strikes uh, we didn't have a single report of any civilian casualties, wow. um, which was, you know, hugely heartwarming. I was really proud of the guys that they did their job, you know, magnificently with that. But yeah, one particular day, we we just got called into action. We crossed the border. You never knew what you were going to be involved with until the day. So you'd be sitting on the tarmac, uh, maybe at night, surrounded by bad weather, thinking I've got eight hours ahead and I don't know where I'm going. I might be going to Iraq. I might be going to Syria. I might be going to the north. I might be doing reconnaissance, I might be doing close air support with, with troops, troops in contact, I don't know. So that in itself kind of gets the mind going. Um, but that particular day as we crossed the border, as soon as we checked in with the command and control uh, guys, they were like, right, there's a situation, we need you over here right now. And we're just thrust into this, situ uh, thrust into this extreme um, close air support mission that just ran for hours and we went from uh, initially there was an anti-aircraft gun that had been firing and they wanted that destroying uh, so we took that out there was an ammunition storage building there were then some uh, there was a sniper that was shooting at civilians kind of north of the country uh, so we dealt with that then we had to go and tank then there was a huge fight raging uh, just on the outskirts of Baghdad um, and looking down you get a lightning which is a high definition camera and so you get a really crystal clear image of what's happening on the ground in the cockpit and you can move this thing around and you're talking to the soldiers uh, or the soldier who's controlling you um, who's a specialist it's called a jtac who's a specialist soldier trained in coordinating aircraft and artillery and things between you you're working about uh, where where you're needed and, and and what they want you to do and so you're moving this camera around on the ground to look at the right point and you could i could be huge just dust just kind of getting kicked up people running around firing rocket rocket propelled grenades at each other and small arms and there's just this battle uh, happening right beneath your feet and you're being asked to um to assist and and, and where the friendlies are being, getting pinned down and you that's where you get involved and it was so kinetic and so frenetic that we just gone through all our weapons and they wanted to do a a, a cannon attack a gun attack which was the first one they just completely came out of the blue and it was we need it we need it now we need it here um and so yeah i just i did that and it was a case of rolling down 
I think I was about 15,000 feet. Generally start these things from quite high. You roll down, get the sighting up, and then you end up quite low because you need to get very close. Even though it's a 27 millimeter cannon, you've, you've still got to get very, very accurate and so very close um, to the targets before you fire to have a, uh, you know, a chance of getting these things close. And there's no clever weapon aiming in it. You've just got to point the aircraft. You're looking through a, a head-up display, which gives you a little aiming pipper, a little green pipper, but you've got to get that to within half a millimeter of where you need to go. Um, to get the jet onto the target, I had to roll it inverted, put it down to about 30 degrees nose down, accelerate to about just under 500 knots. Wow. And you're bumping your way down through the turbulence. And so trying to aim this thing um, was something that, you know, we practice in slow time and peacetime because it's a, it's a fairly challenging skill to kind of get that thing exactly bang on. And at the same time, I was very aware that they had small arms and were probably only delighted to shoot, you know, back back into the sky and they also had surface to air missiles handheld ones as well um, so putting out countermeasures as i was going down electronic um, sorry infrared countermeasures to try and seduce any missiles if they were coming and just hoping that no bullets landed in the airframe because there's nothing you can really do to protect against that um, so my i remember my i could despite all the g equipment and the speed and the turbulence i could feel my heart <laughs> Like my body, the heart just pulsing as I was going down, and God only knows what my blood pressure was at that moment in time. But did that attack, and then um, put some more countermeasures out, countermeasures out, and then just climbed back up to height. Um, got the camera back to on the ground, and so yeah, that that was a particularly busy day that we were involved in the strafe attack. It sounds it, it it sounds like an absolute. I I wouldn't want to be against this aircraft. I'll put it that way, um, especially for reading that story and everything that, that, that you've said so far. And it seems like quite for what you described, quite a special aircraft to be part of and everything. So, what was it like when you were told you're going to be the boss of this squadron? It was. Uh, I had to sit down. I read about it in the book because I'd just done this uh, master's course for a year where they put um, uh, some people through a. a a sort of residential courtship and operational planning and things like that. And I'd just done this course. And towards the end, um, you find out where you're going next. The military moves people around all the time. Every two to three, three years you're moved. And you don't really get a say in where you're going. Um, and there are some, as you can probably imagine, there are some great jobs and there are some pretty terrible jobs as well <laughs> out there. And I was just called into the office. I was told you your posting has arrived. And so I walked in and just, the group captain said i'll be with you in a sec and he just typing an email then he picked up a bit of the paper and walked over to me and said yeah go and be the boss of one squadron which was the cool you know that's the coolest job in the raf and i just just sat down i just couldn't believe it so it was amazing and it, it was a bit like what did i feel when i got that arrival letter into the air force you think wow this is a amazing but then oh my god am i ever be able to cope with the responsibility of this job um forming up the squadron at lossy mouth because it had just uh, it had been it had started at Lucas on Typhoons a couple of years before, and then I was to take it over as it arrived at Lossy Mouse. So we had to get even things like infrastructure and new buildings set up. Mm. Uh, we had to get Quick Reaction Alert, which is the defense of UK airspace, going from Lossy Mouth, which was a new task. I knew the jet was getting some new weapons. Um, I didn't know the exercise program at the time, but I knew we'd be going around the world. Uh, I had to meet engineers and a lot of new pilots. Uh, and run the show really for, for the next wow. couple of years. Operations were going to be 
a potential, but there was nothing on the horizon, nothing on the cards at the time, I guess, to sum, to sum up how I felt, you know, it was huge excitement, but again, this huge feeling of, of being daunted by it and being quite nervous about what lay ahead. And was there any kind of extra responsibilities there when you were told that you're going out to fight these aircraft against an enemy and you're in charge? I think you do feel a degree of personal accountability and responsibility to it. I mean, clearly the Air Force is responding to what the politicians have said. And, you know, the military notion, that's a political decision and the military just responds. And what I is give a sense and give a, you know, put the reader not only into the cockpit, but put them on the squadron. And so... Uh, get them to live the experience of what it feels like to be told that you're doing this um, without it's not a political thing and it's not a you know it's not making moral judgments it's just like this is happening and this is what it feels like to be involved in you know in a new conflict and um, you know you, you do get a sense of uh, wanting to get it right clearly making sure that you you're doing it as professionally as possible but I think and, and all the pilots would have felt that they'd all have wanted to look after their buddies. And when you get a huge sense of camaraderie and teamwork on a, on a fighter squadron, it's a fairly unique environment. I think as, as the boss and I'm sure the flight commanders uh, who uh, were on the squadron as well would have felt the same, that you almost feel a duty to make sure that you've given, you've done everything because if there is an incident, if you do lose somebody, you know, there's bound to be an inquiry and investigation where you just want to make sure that you've got everything right and and the worst thing would have been to have people deploy and not come back and i'd have very much felt personally responsible for that and so it was amazing when we did we did all come back from the thing five months later all safe everyone that that went came home and uh, landing back at uh, lossy mouth and watching all the families get reunited again it was just like immeasurable sense of relief that everyone was home safely Brilliant. And when you left the RAF, was there a kind of a part that thinks, because I myself, if I, I, I love flying. And if, if I was told I wouldn't be flying a certain aircraft again, I wouldn't be doing it. I'd feel kind of sad about it. Was, was, was there that when you decided to leave that you thought, oh, I'm not going to get to fly the Typhoon again? Yeah, there was a sadness that I wasn't going to fly it again. And because the way that the, the military moves its people kind of up the ladder and gets them to follow a career path, having run a squadron, my future was going to be almost exclusively desk jobs and headquarters uh, for the next 20 years. And I'd, I'd done, by that point, I'd done about four, five years behind a desk in that kind of 19 year period. And so I'd had a taster of it. I went to the Ministry of Defence to do a strategic planning job, um, which was interesting enough, but my heart was really in flying. And um, I've done a shift in the Air Force and I thought it's probably a good time to leave. So that's why I got the commercial pilot's license and then thought it was a good time to step outside. Right. The other thing is that I think um, fighter squadrons thrive on a kind of youth and energy and a vibrancy. And you need people in, in their 20s and their 30s to be on those things. And um, some people do, you know, do stay in that there's the odd person who's sort of 50 flying. But I think generally speaking, it's it's a thing that's best done when you're young. And so I didn't want to try and recreate the past, you know, done it i got to 39 and i thought it's time to go and be a civilian now brilliant and where did let, let's talk about the book itself where did the idea to write this book come from it was a complete accident and genuinely i kept a diary when i was on operations 
um, because the whole circumstance was so uh, unusual. I was aware and I've got terrible, terrible memories, like a calendar, you know, I thought, unless I start writing some of this stuff down, I'm just going to forget the little moments that happen. Um, and so it wasn't some great weighty diary. It was just that when I went to bed every night, each day had been so extreme. I just wrote, you know, a few lines, this happened today, that happened. Um, and then when I got back, uh, it was just a, a little book that I just chucked upstairs and, you know, I thought one day I'll get around to writing that up and reading it again and just left it. And then during lockdown, um, I just had more time, I guess, like everyone else and thought, well, I'll, I'll just sit down and start writing it up just on a Word document typing. And they encouraged me to kind of keep going, maybe turn it into a book. And so that's where the motivation came from. I think the other thing was when you get back from something like that, lots of people just, they almost don't know what to ask, but they'll ask, well, what was it like? You know, and how did you feel? And that's the thing that I've tried to address in it. I've tried to give that lived experience. And you said really kindly right at the start, there aren't many books like it. You know, there's historical books written by far better authors that, that talk about the history of events. But what I've really tried to do is just immerse someone who wasn't there into this extreme you know frenetic uh environment of of the selection the training a little bit of lag but you know two-thirds of the book is about the, the flying the typhoon on operations and it's it's not just about what happened or you know how you drop a weapon it's much more about what you're thinking and what you're feeling and, and what your your peers are feeling and um your nervousness and your fears and conversations back home with family you know that can be strained because you're le leading such an extreme day job and it's trying to bring out all of those uh, things as well, it, you know, the full kind of lived experience of it, just to kind of give people um, that insight into that hidden world. It's brilliant. And I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, it's fantastic to see it as well, because you don't see many aviation books, say, on the shelves of Sainsbury's and stuff. I go around walking around my local Sainsbury's, the book is there. I'm going around walking around Tesco's, the book is there. It's fantastic to see. Um, so really, really well done with that, Mike. Uh, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, podcast today. If anyone is looking uh, for a fantastic Christmas present, I highly recommend Typhoon. Go out and grab your a copy of it now, and it'll give you a fantastic insight into what it's like to fly this amazing aircraft. Mike's time in the Air Force and what it's like to fight the aircraft. Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much, Mike. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you.